Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle of people that make it and occasionally ourselves. I am Camille Foster. I am so fired up and just excited to be here. I am running excessively late today and completely disorganized, but this is still going to be remarkable and exciting today. Um, and I am so thrilled to be here, joined by extraordinary gentlemen, uh, our very good friend, Michael Moynihan of Vice News, I'm told is in route, but I've been told that before and occasionally disappointed. I hope I won't be tonight. I'm so excited because this is going to be a great, fun, interesting, exciting is evening. Also, there are rockets excited? being fired uh, in Iraq by Iran, and this seems like a big deal, so we should probably talk about that, and maybe I should be a little less excited. Uh, I don't know. But Adderall's going to Adderall. There's nothing yeah, you can do about this it. This is true. God, I'm, I am spectacular tonight. Matt Welch, <laughs> editor at Large Reason Magazine, also in the building. Uh, he's uh, saying not, true things. Not rockets, missiles. Missiles. Right. That's, is, that's, there is a difference between the two. We're trying to figure out whether they're cruise or ballistic. Well, perhaps someone can explain yeah. that to us. Perhaps someone like Anthony Fisher, our very good friend from Insider, who has, again, a new title that I'm still just... And has, and has a microphone this time. He's got a microphone. It's I'm working. Yeah, I was there last time. Don't get carried too. away, you piece of shit. Um, <laughs> what, what is your position again, Fisher? My position? Yeah. Is that I'm not a piece of shit. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Politics columnist, wow. not the insider. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, well, he's no. totally legit. You know, and I stand up for myself, Matt. I mean, he did. He punched back. I want. I want to point <laughs> out. Punch, punch punched back up even. Hard. Yeah. That not only is Camille wearing a Washington Bullets cap. Yes. Which has already received the comments on social media. Has it? It has. Oh, good. Uh, As it should. I mean, I have a bunch of these. I know. Yeah. But you're also wearing a George Wallace pin. Well, there is a story. And we'll get to that story in a moment. Should be noted that the Washington Bullets. Part of the reason they changed their name was in the aftermath of the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin. Is that right? See? Yep. One of the owners. This is why we bullets. turn his mic on. Is that really true? That sounds like fake news. Because I'm, I remember Chuck Brown, the godfather of go-go music, who made a song, um, and or at least said in one of his various songs that DC don't mean Dodge City because DC was at one point the murder capital of the country, staggering rates of violence, and my understanding as a DC native was always that the staggering rates of violence in D.C. had something to do with the name change. Retrospective from 2018 in the Washington Post, the headline is, My friend was shot. How an assassin's bullet in Israel changed an NBA's team in name in D.C. Wow. <laughs> wow. So Israel is responsible for changing the name. I know my Middle Eastern politics and my NBA. Wow. Right? Is it, I mean, we're about two minutes into it, and already you've got, like, your anti-Semitic tropes going here. What's Are you talking about them that? controlling the media and the no. names of sports teams? I'm, I just That's feel like you just did. I don't, just I don't divorce sports from politics. Wow. Right? You I don't, should be ashamed I of yourself. Politics wow. in my sports. You should be ashamed of yourself. Well, you know who isn't ashamed of himself? <laughs> uh, Noah Rothman, our guest for this evening, who is a MSNBC contributor. He's also a, a columnist for commentary or at commentary. Is there, yeah, that's that's good. This, by the way, has been fascinating. It's like watching Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it's not totally unverifiable, but it doesn't sound fascinating. 
Um, it's it's verifiable in a way, um, perhaps not by us. I mean, we don't know what the hell we're talking about, but that's fine. We pretend anyways. Moynihan, more than anyone else. I mean, he pretends, pretends to have encyclopedic knowledge. You can tell, like, uh, when he's when he's pretending the most is when he, like, drops that little, like, uh, crappy New England fake British accents. <laughs> Mid-Atlantic. <laughs> Mid-Atlantic, right, whatever the fuck it's called. Um, yeah, that's like, uh-oh, here, here, here comes erudite Moynihan. It's insufferable. Oh, my God. Get off your phone, Camille. We've talked about this. It's not helpful when you do that. <laughs> just takes us out of the moment. Then I have to edit it. Someone was ringing me. I was turning it off so I could focus my attention in the room. Gosh. But you got a lot of focus to, left I'm over. I'm here. Noah Rothman. Yeah. To properly introduce Noah Rothman, associate editor at Commentary and NBC and MSNBC contributor. That, you can, you, I didn't say MSNBC contributor? Kind of. Yeah, you kind of sure. burbled through it and said columnist and said something like that. Oh. You guys are going to have to get a room to fight each other. <laughs> I mean, if Noah wants to correct the record, he can. Well, he kind of did when he said Wikipedia. I think that was implying bad facts. <laughs> but, that was before, <laughs> but that was before I introduced him. Okay. Noah, I want you to feel empowered here. And I don't want you to feel like you have to take a backseat to Fisher, <laughs> who's like speaking up on your behalf. If you feel He's slighted in, in any way, I want you to just, you know, speak your piece. And today... We are going to have a very interesting conversation, I hope, um, about the conflict that is brewing in the Middle East right now, perhaps between the U.S. and, and Iran. Uh, by some accounts, we've, we've already been at war with Iran um, and things are just heating up more. But I think there are some contrasting views in the room, and I definitely want to get you um, to, talk to, the, to talk to us about this. I'd, I'd asked Fisher um, after we finished recording the last time we were all together if we could find someone who could give us the case for just fucking Iran shit up. And he said, well, I bet Noah would do that. Um, and I'm not, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure how you feel about that. But that is what you're here for tonight. Well, I guess I can give you a, a case for a calibrated um, fucking kicking, I guess. Of, of yeah, shit. But, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but I don't anticipate going, you know, full rah-rah because that is just as silly as the responses that I've seen from uh, the left, which mm-hmm. generally say that this is the onset of World War Three. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of a uh, Twitter mania. Um, Even though we're, we're recording, to be sure, on what night is this? Tuesday, Tuesday night. night. So bombs are falling on U.S. bases, right? Or yeah, by the time missiles. everybody hears this, the information will be outdated. Right. Um, but this is ongoing. The last time that we gathered for a, um, a, uh, a regular podcast was in the middle of it, we found out about Suleimani mm-hmm. um, and then tried to react in real time. So uh, this started about three hours ago. So we're processing right. the information as it comes. From what I understand from Twitter uh, slash Wikipedia is that uh, <laughs> the president is has convened a bunch of his advisors and he might go on TV even tonight to talk about what's happening. I don't think we've heard much in the way of uh, any U.S. casualties Um, There's a presumption, I think, out there that if you're talking about missiles that originate in in Iran um, hitting targets, that there's going to be some casualties because it's kind of hard to imagine not. But who knows? Big places. And and even even now, do we we know if the missiles are actually originating in Iran? The Defense Department has confirmed that they originated in Iran. They're ballistic missiles. And Iran has taken taken responsibility for this. Yeah, this is an escalatory response. Um, Okay. It would not be an escalation if we were talking about even Katushka's uh, rockets launched from inside Iraq. Um, There's the chance that, and we haven't heard anything about casualties, we have heard that Iraqis uh, 
died as a result of these attacks. But these bases, these Iraqi bases, there are no United States bases in Iraq. There are Iraqi bases in Iraq where there are United States positions. What we've heard so far, and again, all this could be outdated tomorrow, um, is that there are not U.S. casualties at this point. And if there are not U.S. casualties at this point, this feels to me and to observers who I trust like a calibrated escalation, a face-saving maneuver designed to communicate to the United States that Iran has interests that it will defend and it will defend them aggressively. But it is not inviting the kind of response that you would see from a a substantial attack on United States positions that produced American casualties. And the response that we would have to probably initiate from that would be a substantial volley of of missiles on military targets, maybe even um, air raids, and that would again, precipitate an escalatory cycle of, of retaliation response. And that's the kind of thing we want to avoid. The problem that we encountered with Iran over the course of the last eight months, nine months, is that Iran has not been deterred. It engaged, going back to May of last year, in a campaign of piracy on the high seas, mm-hmm. pirating NATO vessels, sabotaging NATO vessels, sophisticated operations using really fast boats and divers that go below the waterline, fix mm-hmm. explosives to these vessels and dis- disable them from below the water, the kind of thing that only a state can do. Um, after that, we saw the downing of the United of an American drone, for which they faced no response, um, which was probably a mistake. A very sophisticated multi-drone attack on the world's largest petroleum processing facility in Saudi Arabia a decade ago in a world without fracking. This would all have responded, necessitated an international military response. You can't do that kind of attack on the global oil supply without, A, cratering uh, the supply, Mm -hmm. creating a giant price surge, and forcing everybody into action. One of the reasons why the uh, the Bush administration didn't take the actions that it needed to take against people like Soleimani, who were orchestrating attacks on American soldiers in Iraq, according to Pentagon estimates, producing one in six U.S. casualties on the ground in Iraq, because they were afraid of the oil shocks that would result. We no longer have that concern. We have a lot more freedom of action as a result of this fracking Mm -hmm. um, uh, innovations. And then things kind of died down. Trump was had apparently planes on the tarmac ready to go, backed off at the very last minute. Things died down briefly. So Iran was spooked. Didn't last long. Over the course of the last two months, November, December, there had been 11 confirmed rocket attacks on U.S. positions in Iraqi, in Iraq, uh, another 13, 12, 13 attacks on the green zone. Um, and one of them produced American casualties. December 27th, we had an American contractor was killed. Three U.S. troops were killed. So Trump finally, and it was a long time coming, finally orchestrated, calibrated response, struck five positions from the militia that was responsible for these attacks. A group named Khatib Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. Iraq, Syria positions were struck and produced some casualties. But that was that was designed to, you know, communicate that we're prepared to finally respond to these things. Now, in response to that, this organization and the militia responsible for it, um, linked to Iran, orchestrated a really brazen, really dangerous attack on the embassy in Baghdad. And we're all aware of it, but the details of this are really staggering. Mm-hmm. This organization breached the outer walls, got into the building, set the building on fire, forced our diplomats into a safe room for 24 hours. It was a real contingency. We had to airlift 100 Marines in there to deploy all these non-lethal munitions on this group just in order to prevent them from sacking the embassy getting our diplomats in a position where they could possibly be hostages and threatening the diplomatic presence in Iraq. Now, if you don't think that necessitates a response, you're going to have to take it up with the Obama administration, which also did very similar exercises in the wake of the Benghazi attack by 
listing al-Shabaab as this terrorist group that would be subject to counter-terror organiz- uh, uh, responses because you can't have your diplomats subject to this kind of threat, especially from a state sponsor. We're not talking about a stateless group. This is mm-hmm. obviously directed from Iran. Now, they, the execution of Soleimani was absolutely justified. But it was an escalatory response. The response was designed, in my view, to be something that would restore deterrence, in part because it degrades Iran's capacity to execute these kind of attacks. This is not just anybody. This is not just a cog in a machine you can replace. It's the kind of guy who executes these sort of attacks because he has the command and control structure that is loyal to him that can execute these kind of strikes. When you take somebody like that off the battlefield, it's very difficult to replace them. So when people say, okay, this is obviously designed to be escalatory and it's obviously reckless and they didn't think this sort of thing through, uh, I, I would differ with that. I think that the option that is presented to the president in this sort of situation and the response that it would, the series of events that it's designed to res- to yield um, no, are, I- are supposed to be de-escalatory, to impose caution and risk on yeah. Iran. One final point before... Designed to well, Designed well, I, to I, One final point. Yeah. When you have an adversary that's intent on testing the status quo, which Iran is, Iran's mm-hmm. a revisionist power, they will test until they encounter an unacceptable level of risk or resistance. They're testing their parameters and their freedom of action. Inevitably, and because they were performing constant escalatory attacks, they were inevitably going to provoke a response of some kind that was proportionate. Well, they've they've escalated again tonight. And before it's arguable. We, well, before we get into a lot of the nuts and bolts of what you were just laying out, I want to return to the events of tonight, which, again, we are waiting to find out what happened here. But there's something I think that's a bit curious about what she said a moment ago. When you talked about the attacks tonight, you suggested that the response was somehow uh, on Iran's part less brazen because as a, at the moment, there are no U.S. casualties, again, that we know of. Yeah. But it seems as though you were suggesting that Iran was careful in ensuring they selected targets that would not result in there being U.S. Pa- casualties if, in fact, there aren't U.S. casualties, which I don't, I don't know that that really washes. Well, I don't know that the, for sure. That's the argument that you're making. Okay, I certainly so we'll, don't know we'll that for sure. We'll have to wait sure. and see. But and they selected it, the targets where Americans are. But the reporting that I saw on this earlier suggested that these were bases where U.S. personnel have been, yeah. um, which, which could very well mean that they were there tonight or that they expected that they might be there tonight. And th- that was the reason those locations were selected. So whether or not there are U.S. casualties, it seems to me that this is a significant escalation. And it, it seems like it's also the sort of thing that might actually require some sort of response. And it might, I to, hope it to, doesn't. To the closing point that you made a moment ago, the notion that you know, a power like Iran is going to test its limits until it runs up against some sort of resistance. Well, they've run up against resistance. It's happened twice now. And they have responded twice now. Yeah. And the the question, of course, that everyone has been asking all across the media landscape is, where does this go? And this, the, the warning is, we don't know how far this could go or how badly this could go. But I would take a step further back than even that and ask a more fundamental question, which is, what on earth are our priorities in the Middle East? What is the objective of the Trump administration when it comes to not only Iran, but Iraq broadly? Because that is where our our personnel are that are being placed in harm's way. If they're not there, they're not getting hit by Iran. And it seems to me that that's the first order question that has to be addressed there. What is it that we're after? And if if this can be defined, if it has been defined, because it's not obvious it has, um, what price is it worth? 
how how long should we be wagging our chin out in the air waiting to get clocked by someone who is very willing to take pot shots at U.S. personnel and resources? Because if the argument is if someone is hitting us, then we have to hit them back. And in some cases, we need to hit them back twice as hard. Well, maybe the question is, well, why are we putting ourselves in a position to be hit in the first place? We've been in Iraq and Iran and Syria and uh, Afghanistan. We have broadly been in this region for about 20 years. Okay, you years. asked a bunch of questions there. I'd like I to did, answer them my, all. My, my questions <laughs> and response are not nearly as long as the opening monologue I allowed you. So if you'll, if you'll grant moderator's prerogative here. Fair enough. I wanna, well, we, I weren't, give us we were in contours. Iraq in 2011. We came back in 2014 because... Um, the vacuum that we left resulted in the formation of a transnational terrorist group that sacked Mosul and threatened to eradicate the Yazidis. And we came back very reluctantly. Was there no support staff in Iraq? Only in the embassy. In that, in that period? Only in the embassy. Okay. We removed our, our combat troops. And okay. in the interim, Iran moved its uh, forces, proxy forces and regular forces mm-hmm. into Syria, exacerbated the situation, mm-hmm. created a humanitarian crisis of an unprecedented scale, and resulted I, in a in a humanitarian, humanitarian yeah, yeah. crisis and a migration that shattered the political consensus in Europe, created a trans national terrorist group and we had to come back so we're back because we left yeah one two i I think that's i think that's fair back to our grand national strategy here yeah the big objective of the united states is to stop shooting wars big shooting wars between states are not in our interest now the design is to deter stop to stop shooting wars broadly writ large yeah writ large no shoot everything that is a war is costlier than peace even if that peace is maintained at the very expensive cost of our defense budget and forward positioning. But that's less expensive than human cost, than human life. And destroyed whatever, you know, cost of cost of war destroyed infrastructure uh, um, and, and lives and equipment. Um, so that's the objective. That here, is the is objective to stop of shooting the Trump wars. administration, or that's sort of the broader overarching objective that's, of the Defense that's Department? Grand National Sp- and the United States maintains a series of Grand National Strategy objectives, yeah. the first of which is to stop shooting wars, um, the second of which is to maintain the international order that derived out of World War II, another is to reintegrate states into these institutions that we maintain and the rules of the road that we set in the fourth is to uh, prevent nuclear weapons from spreading broadly, vertically, or horizontally. Those are our four chief objectives. And Trump has been a challenge to many of those, but go on. Yeah, I don't really actually think he's capable of executing any of these strategies, but nevertheless, um, those are the chief objectives and deterring states, aggressive states, revisionist states from miscalculating into a war. Iran doesn't want a war either, but they could do something that would trigger an attack like, for example, lay siege to the American embassy. And that's the sort of thing that you, that you, and you could, and you can see from their perspective why they wouldn't expect the kind of retaliatory response that we did because they didn't calculate that that would be our retaliatory response. That was a miscalculation on their part. Miscalculations can start wars between two powers that don't actually want it. So the objective is to communicate, communicate that the cost of your actions will be far greater than the benefits that you derive from them. That's the essence of deterrence. Mm-hmm. And if the intention here is to restore deterrence, and it could very well still be restored. I mean, it's sort of counterintuitive while there are missiles flying around. But what yeah. I'm worried about from Iran is not missiles. I understand. Not missiles directed from Iranian territory, not the IRGC. What I'm worried about are proxy forces in Western Europe mm-hmm. and the United States executing attacks on civilians, uh, asymmetric terrorist attacks on civilians. That's where their real capabilities lie. That's the kind of thing that would necessitate a real powerful response from the United States and the West broadly. And you think a conflict of the nature of the one that is being fought now. I'm I'm just going to acknowledge that I'm going to accept that there is, in fact, a conflict between the United States and Iran that has been happening by proxy in this region for a very long time. 
you think a conflict like this is likely to degrade their capacity to carry out the sort of asymmetric um, attacks in the United States, in various parts of Europe, throughout the Middle East. Taking Soleimani off the battlefield certainly does. Huh. Okay. I'm he's skeptical. The, he's the executor. I'm deeply of skeptical of that, of that proposition. Of that. And I, I listened to the commentary podcast. I heard the suggestion by John that he might, in fact, be sort of the Steve Jobs of um, Iranian terrorist uh, tactics and an orthodox asymmetric warfare. But I don't know about that. Like I don't a lot know, of the, I don't a lot of either. a lot of the stuff they're doing here doesn't seem like rocket science. And a critical question except it the seems stuff that literally involves rockets. I, I want to get you involved that. as well, <laughs> Matt. But but part of the the calculus here seems to be you know Iran is a country that even before this happened was in a very vulnerable state. They've been dealing with mounting protests and dissatisfaction from within with their own with respect to their own populace and they've had violent crackdowns on them but they were also dealing with a great deal of unhappiness and dissatisfaction from the Iraqi populace who had been demonstrating against the Iranians for some time and one wonders if an attack like this which is meant to deter them which is meant to cost them something significant if an attack like this actually has the consequence of making things worse for Iran and further dividing and splintering them and making them look less stable or if it strengthens them and if it gives them a single enemy to focus on and plays into what I think is the, the vital narrative that Iran has been spinning to defend itself forever and ever. Amen, which is the narrative of the great Satan. This plays into that narrative. I don't know how this plays out, but it seems to me that there are at least those two possibilities. And it's as likely as not that this strengthens them, at least for a time, um, and focuses their energy on the United States in a way that if we weren't in the region, it, it might not focus their attention. In I, that would, way. I would I uh, would uh, highlight two things that Noah said. Uh, one is the notion that we came, we came back because we left. Uh, and the other is that, uh, yes, we actually have planned this out a little bit because I think those two things are related. I think when we say we plan this out, um, yeah, the military draws up. They've been drawing up uh, possibilities of striking this guy for 10 years. I mean, the mm -hmm. contingency – longer probably. The contingency plans have been there. But planning out um, what you plan is one thing. Seeing how the region is going to look like uh, after you do a bunch of stuff and it's five and ten years down the road is something else. And I think we've been really bad about that. And I think mm -hmm. that's related. I mean, we we – Come back because we left because we went there in the first place. And, you know, the uh, Ross Doubthat, or as I call him, D-Hat, because I'm never going to pronounce his last name correctly, <laughs> I think had a great column today in, in the New York Times mm -hmm. where he um, situated, and I think accurately so, Trump's foreign policy in the Jacksonian tradition, sort of the uh, irritable nationalism, like uh, I'm not really interested in international institutions, um, doesn't care about your precious mores, actually likes to threaten you with war crimes because if you fuck with us, we'll, at, we'll double fuck with you um, is the basic uh, approach. And that this is there's a long tradition of that in America. There's a long kind of um, uh, among the population. There's it, it resonates with people. Um, what Ross points out, and I think it's it's true, is that one, we haven't seen that in an American leader very often, if really at all, since World War II, since the creation of this order that you're talking about that's on our kind of highest level of of, of uh, what we're defending um, as a country. Uh, and then 
also because of that, you have a um, the situation on the ground that he is inheriting and responding to is one that is not of a Jacksonian creation, right? So yes, he's re- reinserting uh, deterrence. Let's let's take that as a given as a as a as a concept, right, or a theory of action. We want to. You know, and you can like draw this back to if you had to redo Afghanistan and say um, we we keep the war, but we don't have the nation building. It would be more of a Jacksonian thing. You harbored the terrorists that hit us. Fuck you. We're taking out your your uh, leadership of the country. And then we're like piecing out. We're getting the hell out. We don't care what happens to you. That would be the Jacksonian response. And I think a better response than what we ended up doing in Afghanistan. So Trump inherits a world that is the creation of people who thought that they could topple regimes in Baghdad and then later with Obama in Libya. And like, it'd be fine. In fact, those topplings absolutely uh, made it uh, the ground safe for Iran to flex its muscles, right? That like if they acted upon this notion that, you know, there's red lines and we have to, you know, show our credibility and you can't cross this line and and this is going to happen. So, all right, we acted on those on those ideas and we created a a beautiful spot for Suleimani and people like him to come through. Mm -hmm. And so when you restore deterrence in that thing, you're going to get into the Camille problem of this tit for tat just keeps going up like this and you blunder into wars that in Trump's case, you tell he doesn't really want to go into a big land war. He even said in in his speech on uh, Friday talking about this, I don't want a regime change war, you know, even as he's just taken out Soleimani. Mm-hmm. Um, but just because you have this context uh, and a sort of new approach to an old situation, which is kind of, uh, you know, we're going to wipe out regimes um, and and somehow it's going to be all better. I, I That creates an instability, even if you can understand ev- where everyone's coming from. Yeah, I got you. So uh, a couple of quibbles, and then I want to get into how Iran is thinking about this, sort of, because mm-hmm. that's very instructive. So a qu- brief quibble. We didn't have a regime change plan in Libya. That was the problem. It, it, Obama explicitly said that we're not we're not trying to topple this dictator. We don't want that. This is an air action, humanitarian action on in the air. We didn't have a plan for the day after Gaddafi was supposed to fall because he wasn't supposed to fall. The, and then when he within, did, we within, didn't have a contingency in within place. A, within pretty early on in the process, the people who were advocating this knew that he was going to to fall and that this was going to become part of what they're doing. I right. agree. There's no planning for it in any way, shape, or form. It but. certainly wasn't the design. Neither here nor there. Second, briefly on Iraq. I mean, there's this, this kind of a notion that abroad, that in the absence of the 2003 invasion, uh, invasion, the status quo ante would uh, persist. But the status quo ante wasn't peaceful by any means. After 1991, we engaged in hostilities in Iraq in 1993, 1996, 1998, and we mm-hmm. produced casualties in 1994. We shot down our own helicopter, killed 15 Americans. I mean, this sort of thing happened pretty frequently. The notion that there would be peace in Iran or in Iraq in the absence of the 2003 uh, uh, war strikes me as inconvenient because, because there was no peace before the but 2003 war. we were war. policing their airspace. I mean, right. that Every that's, day. That's what happens when you police shit, right? right. I mean, People that's, shoot at your police. That's not Jacksonian either. I mean, this, the but, international policing action was a result of the status quo that resulted from the 1991 war, which was by any stretch. No one would say that would be a complete engagement unless you suggest that just pushing Saddam Hussein out of Iraq again or out of Kuwait. This is sort of neither here nor there. But, but shouldn't shouldn't the baseline be like what actually happened as a consequence of our in, engagement in Iraq and again, in the broader region, in terms of the actual number of casualties on both sides, the duration of time that we've had sort of sustained conflict in the region, 
that would have to be, you'd have to be arguing that the status quo would have resulted in at least this much awfulness. Like ISIS, Syria melting down, all of those things. That would have to be the trade-off I mean, in order for this to be a better strategy. It's, it's tough when you engage in these hypotheticals because then you can go all the way back to the partition of the, is, the Ottoman Empire. It's necessarily, really to, it's always, necessarily complicated. Always go back <laughs> but if, to the partition. But, 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 but if the organizing principle here, if the, only, if the only policy objective that we can appeal to is, well, we're going to try to prevent shooting wars and we're going to do that by introducing the probability that there will be a sustained shooting war involving the United States and whoever the hell it is we're trying to check. Like, I mean, then, that, is, then the, this that is, is the nature and the essence of this deterrent. is sort of an absurd but sort this is of why policy objective. I don't think it's, it's absurd it's, it's at all. Overly, it's overly broad. And, and I think worse, the political reality, the political limitations that are placed on um, a, a government that hopes to achieve an objective like that, a very broad objective is, I mean, if you want to have a regime change war in Libya, you actually kind of need the American people to want that shit too. Right. And at a minimum, if they want it at the moment, you have to have allow yourself enough time to institute this policy successfully. Because if your policy is bold and it's likely to work, and if we give you 50 years, you will transform the region. I don't mean you generally, but hypothetically. Um, that policy is only as good as the political will that actually exists in the populace to give you the time to do it. Right. Because if they won't give you the time to do it, and, and Afghanistan is a counterpoint to that because the political will existed over the course of 20 years to well, see that mission through. Or, or the political, the political like apathy. <laughs> I think that's the only thing that is sustaining America's engagement in that entire region. The I mean, fact I that most a, Americans just have no idea the various places that were deployed. They don't know that we are taking casualties in Kenya. They don't, they don't know. It's they the don't reason know, why but, they permit but it. But these things are also unpopular. Afghanistan is unpopular. This is right? true, too. Like, if you poll it, they, we want Americans to come home. Yeah. It's just, and every... But I cut no Roth. I'm sorry. And they have resigned, them, Americans have resigned themselves to on, being a, a failure. And then the interventionist <laughs> right is forced to confront its, its failures and its hubris on a fairly regular basis. The mm -hmm. non-interventionist right is, or left for that matter, is rarely forced to confront the non-event, which is the non-intervention in Syria is the classic example of that. That was an episode in which the United States did everything it possibly could to withdraw itself from that conflict, created a power vacuum, invited great power conflict by allowing Iran and Russia to fill the vacuum that we left. Ultimately, we were compelled to enter that space because we had no choice. And it makes a lot of sense when you think of the fact that you have a shooting war, a destabilized, non-state, failed state in the Levant, some of the most fought over soil in the history of mankind, that that conflict would not resolve itself in a way that was satisfactory to the United States. Eventually, we had no choice but to intervene. And that's a failure of non-interventionist politics. But again, hmm. we, are going, we had no choice. I, I, I just can't wrap my head around we had no choice. Well, we spent five years trying. I, right. I would just I mean, fail. Can like, you describe all, for me what the world looks like if we don't do anything there? Well, I mean, it, it, it looks like what it's been. I mean, it's been, it's been slaughtered. I mean, the problem is that you have in Iraq and in Libya and Syria – Three pretty different models of engagement, non-engagement. You're going to do it like we're going to go full war. We're going to go, you know, reduce by bombs and proxies or we're going to come up to a red line and walk away. Shit show all three places. Yeah. And states are easy, and, and international relations with states, with governments are easier to manage in the sense that we understand how states behave and, and how they behave vis-a-vis -vis other states, going back to the Peloponnesian Wars. Mm -hmm. um, Until Donald Trump gets elected someplace. Well, I mean, we understand what, what Iran's strategic interests are. For example, 
when Iran was when Soleimani was struck, Iran said we're abrogating the Iran deal. Every bit of the Iran deal were out, right? No, they didn't say that. That's what was reported in the United States, but it was a misreporting. What they said is they're going to continue to abide by the so-called enhanced verification provisions in the deal because Iran's strategic vision is to sever America's relationship with Europe, to force Europe to confront the United States to say this is too aggressive. You know, we're going to we're going to back. We're, we're pursuing our own deal with Iran and to relieve the sanctions that are already on it. What Iran doesn't want to do is abrogate the deal entirely and force Europe to say, OK, we have no choice but to revert to the snapback provisions that are in the actual JCPOA. They don't want to do that. That's not in their vision. That would be a failure of their strategic objectives. So they do have some strategic objectives that we know that they're pursuing that are absolutely paramount and that we can hold over their heads. One of the ways we do that is by imposing some caution on them militarily, but also diplomatically. There's an effort underway right now as we speak to get Iran back to the negotiating table. I know that sounds difficult to envision as missiles are in it's the air. difficult mm-hmm. to envision. But, it's, yes. but if this is a face-saving effort on the part of Tehran to demonstrate that you know it's, it's a sovereign state, it's got interests at play, and it's willing to defend them aggressively, then it would behave as it's behaving now with this show of force which I think it is. It's a show of force. Now, I could be wrong. As we're speaking now, I haven't yeah, looked at my Twitter account. I have no idea what's I'm happening. I'm refreshing. Keep talking. Trump's not going to speak tonight, by the way. Keep okay, talking. good. Good. That's, what, that's, <laughs> that's what, generally good. That's what everybody is saying. Has anyone Thank said he God. won't tweet because, tonight? Because taken his phone away from What him? we don't want to see from the United States is an escalatory response right now. We could. This could very well just be an effort to demonstrate, look, we can hit you back. We have hit you back. Don't do this again. You know, you've, you've been taught a lesson and we can appear we can afford to appear chastened. We've got the upper hand in this situation now. And if it restores some semblance of a balance, some caution, imposes mm. some caution on the mullahs who now have reason to fear for their personal safety, because if we can hit Soleimani, we can hit them. Then we'll have affected the kind of change that I think we've needed to affect for the last eight months because Iran mm. has not been deterred or not been held in check. Quick question for you. Terribly optimistic. Is you were sort of talking about if, you know, if there are limited or even no casualties, U.S. casualties, then that is, you know, perhaps a calibrated response by Iran and, and it prevents us from going into there. So if you just had to like off the top of your head, what's a number, right? If it's 10 U.S. service people killed. Is that we're going to we're, one? We're going to be war criming uh, cultural sites. I mean, no, like, I, I don't anticipate we'll be war criming any cultural sites. Uh, I mean, that's but the president, the, the president has off. even backed off um, from that inelegantly. In, in his uh, has in his he backed way. off? He he yes, did. He did that okay. weird cryptic statement he gave. He said he doubled down on it first. Well, what he said today okay. um, was, you know, if that's the law, you know, Whatever. I like, but a, I like it, a let me tell you, law. let me tell you, like this doesn't make any damn sense. I mean, we ought to be able to hit their cultural sites. We should be able to kill the terrorist families. Yeah, everything he has said since we killed Soleimani has been unhelpful or counterproductive. It's about par for the course. Just about everything. To be devil's advocate, like uh, yes and no, like the part of part of deterrence. Matt's putting on his MAGA hat right now. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I'm going to put on this weird Google beanie. We got all this swag that we'll have to talk about that later. Don't segue. Um, But uh, no, uh, is that part of deterrence is the fire and fury crazy man. And some of which, like, even, you know, John Bolton, Steve Bannon, people have left the administration. It's like, yeah, he doesn't really. He's just it's all bark. It's not really any bite. I mean, he did bite and kill a senior 
an Iranian uh, official here. But so that's like, a counter force strike. What what Trump is talking about is a counter value strike. Now, there's a real importance to having a counter value strategy. But the counter value strategy is the sort of Damocles hanging over your adversary's head that you reserve for after you've executed a counter force strike. And once you've executed a successful counter force strike, the adversary should be self-deterred. They should be aware that they no longer have the capacity to execute any kind of a strike that would affect the objectives that they want. And if they did so, it would put their value sites at risk. That's the whole reason you have a counter value strategy. You're never, ever supposed to get to that point, because if you do, it's already a mess and probably really bad for you as well. But once you execute a counter force strike, you're supposed to deter an adversary. That's the theory, at least, and especially in nuclear. But just to be clear, so like seriously, if there's one U.S. service person killed, you're worried that we're going to see... Um, fire and fury or, or like an escalation on the U.S. part. Or I would be concerned. Worried slash, I mean, would you, uh, you know, Commander-in-Chief Noah Rothman, um, <laughs> say that this is this is important to keep American credibility? Like, I would defer to my advisors and my generals <laughs> and look at my menu of options. John Bolton, but nevertheless, Steve Bannon. Nevertheless, what we did respond when we had an American advisor and three American soldiers killed, and we responded military, militarily in a proportionate way, um, and then we responded in a disproportionate way, I would argue, others wouldn't, I would argue, to the embassy attack. Um, so if we were to see American casualties or fatalities, then yes, I would expect a military response. And hopefully we haven't seen that. And I don't think we have because we expected this to come. Everybody was in a hardened position when this attack occurred. So hopefully um, Iran has not killed or, or wounded any American soldiers. And if they did, Trump would probably feel compelled to respond reciprocally and if they haven't then maybe he doesn't and at that point we can probably cool things down if if cooler heads prevail um camille i want to pose a question to you um because partly because i'm uh, wrestling with aspects of it myself which is that Suleimani and the uh, the quds forces have been basically an expansionist regional player in instability or at least sort of creating proxy wars and governments mm-hmm Legally, morally, something um, in the same way that uh, ISIS presented this problem. What do you do with a stateless state? Right. What do you do? Or, you know, terrorists uh, generally a terrorist organization. What do you do with stateless organizations that mean you harm Um, uh, in your mind? What is a proper or just even how you wrestle with the question? What is a U.S. response to an expansionist? Right. I'm going to mess around with other countries. And while I'm doing that, if the U.S. is there, sure, they've got an embassy the size of the Vatican. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But they're going to lob rockets or they're going to have people that they're friends of theirs lob rockets at the U.S. Um, What is your approach towards the expansionist transnational regional warrior? Uh, Mm -hmm. And should there be different rules and different things associated with that than we would otherwise have between just two countries, the U.S. and Iran? So if I can answer that in two ways, I mean, if the fundamental thing that we're most concerned about is the security of the homeland, right, in in a circumstance like this, perhaps it is, perhaps it's not. It's where my first concern is. I don't want anyone here within our borders to be struck and hit. Um, then I'm concerned about hardening targets here at home. I'm concerned about making certain that our intelligence assets in these various other places are giving us enough information so that we can actually respond to potential threats here. I'm probably not interested in, and this leads into my 
grand strategy for securing the homeland with my policy abroad. I'm probably not interested in anything that, that looks like a provocation, which means I am very likely to tolerate a great deal of, sort of uncertain, uncontrolled, not even uh, the pretense of the United States trying to, to, to sort of thumb the scale and force outcomes to be sort of good or in our interest in hostile places like Syria, like Iran, like Afghanistan, like Iraq. If Iran's ambition in the delicate position that they're in, where they're desperately trying to maintain control of their own country, I'm inclined to let them spread themselves too thin and try to do too much and try to be too influential in the region until that has very bad consequences for them. And those very bad consequences don't have to be U.S. Tomahawk missiles. They don't have to be U.S. boots on the ground in Iran that are trying to serve as a counterpoint to their influence in the region. I think Iran is perfectly capable of causing itself a great deal of problems without the added expense of the United States making itself vulnerable to attack by being there in the first place. Perhaps it has the same degree of sort of uncertainty attached to it. I don't know if Noah's proposal for the region is likely to yield a good outcome in the same way that I don't know that my proposal for the region, my hands-off proposal is likely, is likely to yield a good outcome. I think but, a real-world experiment for, for that sort of situation was pretty much the Obama administration. Uh, they, they let a lot of things slide in ways that I don't think most American presidents would. In 2011, Iran tried to execute a assassination of the Saudi foreign ambassador in a Washington, D.C. restaurant with a bomb. Mm-hmm. Um, that plot was interdicted. But if it had been successful, a lot of Americans would have been killed. There would have been a military response to that. Um, the fact that you had American soldiers who were sailors, rather, who were captured, paraded on television in violation of the Geneva Conventions. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the sort of thing that the Obama administration was willing to swallow in deference to the JCPOA. I don't think a lot of other administrations would have. And we talked about the situation in Syria, and you can get a, really deep into the weeds with that. But... It took a lot of will on the part of the administration to tolerate the kind of destabilizing behavior that Iran was engaged in, both in Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Lebanon, over the course of the last decade that I don't think you would see from just about any other administration. And where did it get us? It got us to this point. But to Camille's point earlier about public opinion, that's what I think swayed Syria. I think if you asked Obama, certainly asked John Kerry Mm -hmm. and tripled, certainly, Samantha Power and anybody else around there, they wanted to. Right. We were 48 hours from sending bombers up in Syria. Public opinion was against it. 80-20. Americans are tired of the shit. Right. So like that is a constraint that the worldview of of enforcing credibility and keeping people in their lanes, I think. And you referenced this earlier with Afghanistan and stuff like I I, I haven't seen a lot of people actually grapple with that uh, beyond the mm-hmm. kind of like uh, the facile uh, McCain statement in 2008, which you got a lot of grief for. And I think rightly so and wrongly so at the same time of like, hey, look, we, you know, we've been in Japan for 50 yeah. years or Korea for 50 years. Not the what, what's the problem? Yeah. Um, and like the, the, the problem is Americans don't support this. And this is this is a real, real like strategic, practical yeah, issue. I, I, it's actually, a, a, you know, something something to speak laudably about Americans that they are peace loving. I mean, one of the one of the most uh, speaking of facile, the notion that there's some sort of a wag the dog war that, you know, Americans would love. Americans hate foreign conflicts. The notion that you could get American to a foreign conflict and that would boost 
uh, your 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 political support is really untested. I don't I don't think I there's. Think, I think I think that's right. And I'm sorry to interrupt, but just like what Nikki Haley today, like came out and, and had a, some idiotic statement like, oh, the only people who are cheer who are sad about this are Democrat presidential candidates. Like she went full 2003, yeah, 2004, like Republican <laughs> And that's like that. That doesn't fly. Anymore. It's, it's it just rings silly. Horrible. There's just yeah. no no evidence for that. But also, we're not the only game in town. An American president has to really be concerned about the prospect of other states taking matters into their own hands with, by the way, our tacit consent. We wring our hands about the war in Yemen, but that's a war that we loved because we would have had to do it without them. You can't have an Iranian armed proxy. Well, you would Why? have had to Why? do it. You can't Why have an Iranian armed proxy take over the straits. Why not? The, the, okay, so there's a little little strait yeah. right here yeah. uh, where the Horn of Africa meets uh, the Arabian Peninsula, right? Mm-hmm. It's about 20 miles long. It's yeah, a key yeah. shipping lane. And yes. if Iran, get, Iran gets it and mines it, then you have no shipping throughout this this uh, this this really decisive lane where a lot of oil goes but from could, the Middle East into you could, Europe. You could prevent them from mining it, but Saudi without, Arabia, but without Saudi Arabia under, wouldn't without underwriting Saudi Arabia's atrocities. Yeah, no, we we would love to not <laughs> underwrite Saudi Arabia's atrocities in the region. That would mean but, direct but involvement. But that's what I'm saying. That's still it was you, very it's convenient not as we're for not the Obama administration in the region broadly, and and it's not even obvious to me that the end result of all of this that the Saudis couldn't do much of this on their own, or perhaps with the support of other regimes. I'm, what I'm trying to understand but you don't want is that. what what because I'm trying what to understand get is, is horrific humanitarian disaster. We have one of those, and we're our hands are, have blood on them. That's the point. It's not as though the pick your poison. The, well, here's the poison I'd prefer: a poison where the United States is not at the forefront of all of these bad things and bad outcomes. Where in some cases we acknowledge that the world. It, it, it's interesting because the neoconservative perspective on the universe is the world is dark. It's full of terrors, and we've got to do something about it. And the non-interventionist, responsible non-interventionist perspective is the world is dark. It's full of terrors. And doing something about it might be worse than trying to let it play itself out. And the counterpoint to that is Syria, where you do your best not to let yourself get drawn into the conflict and you're drawn in anyway. But it's also the hyper. But Syria is also a consequence. The the way things unfurled in Syria is also a consequence of the failed intervention. And we can say it's a failed intervention that failed because we left Iraq too soon. But as I mentioned before, I think the the policy dimension is a consequence of the Iraq war. I'm saying the po- no. I'm talking about the conflict in some Syria linkage, with respect right? to ISIS. They're not, There's some. I mean, I think it's hard to. Im- I think, frankly, it's hard to imagine. But I don't know that the Arab Spring, Arab Spring is what's the, responsible the for what happened in Syria. You think yeah, that's, that's no? I'm I'm, fair to say? I'm confused as to your your linkage of them because the 2011 uprising that resulted in the Syrian civil war, as we understand it, was a product of the uh, the Arab revolts. Well, I'm I'm talking specifically about. Um, ISIS, which I think is perhaps the fundamental reason why we had right. to get involved in the region. And the fact that a lot of the the, the fighting force asso- associated with ISIS is folks who were also engaged in the conflict. That was our military Iraq involvement. And the United our diplomatic involvement Precisely right. began in um, the when the use of chemical weapons became widespread and we began to use see sophisticated nerve agents right. being involved. That's but anyway, the point that I'm making is that, there's, is that there's a broad association between these two things. And Syria is not happening in a vacuum, that the U.S. intervention had something to do with things going bad in that region. Not that they wouldn't have gone bad in some other way in a universe where the United States didn't intervene 
intervene. But it's hard to say that Syria is a counterpoint to the perspective that perhaps we shouldn't be everywhere doing everything with our, again, chin out there waiting to get struck by someone so that we can have to strike back. Um, And I think that that's a reasonable perspective that isn't something that is born out of ignorance. It's, I think, born out of a tremendous amount of respect for just how unstable and uncertain the world is and for just how limited our ability to manage these interventions abroad are in the same way that our ability to manage the economy um, in various contexts is wrong, which is why it's so interesting that progressives are often trying to plan our, our society from an economic standpoint and achieve particular outcomes through legislation. And in a very similar way, I think, conservatives often find themselves trying to plan the way that the world will completely unfold by intervening in the world militarily in various places. I mean, and, most and they of don't our... see they don't see the irrationality of trying to sustain the two policies. Yeah, I get it as a philosoph- philosophical sense. notion, but most of our deployments are, are essentially tripwires. Any, anything that's not an advisory deployment or a training deployment is essentially we exist in order to just be a tripwire for the adversarial state that we're trying to contain. If they were to hit them, then they would understand the consequences of that. That's just, again, more deterrence. Uh, the other, we have a problem defining those deployments from advisory capacity deployments. Like, for example, you talked about Kenya. We have no strategic interests in sub-Saharan Africa, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The only strategic interest we have in sub-Saharan Africa is making sure we have no more strategic interests in (laughs) sub-Saharan Africa. That's why, that's why Mm -hmm. you have deployments to places like Kenya or the Philippines. It's not because we have a lot of really vested interests in these parts of the world, although Mm -hmm. we do more so in, in, uh, in Philippines than we do in Kenya, but because we want to prevent them from being in some sort of a transnational terrorist threat that would require a more broad, more sustained deployment. But once U.S. troops start dying in those places, then what? I mean, perhaps you'll have an Iranian conflict that will distract everyone from it. So no one is particularly concerned about that. And the president can ignore it and not really have to respond in a robust way. But if I were to use the same calculus that we're using in Iraq right now, and we see there's U.S. casualties in Kenya, like then what? Is there some sort of escalation? Do we have to send thousands more troops? And if there are thousands more troops, is that another opportunity for us to get more deeply involved in a region where our strategic interests are exceedingly limited and our only goal is to keep our strategic interests limited? I mean, there's, there's, there's something circularly absurd about, I think, that sort of policy. And... I say that with with all due respect, and I say that acknowledging that my own perspective on this is let's just stop doing this shit because it often turns out really, really badly. And it's not obvious that things wouldn't be bad in either case. And perhaps in many instances, they won't get nearly as bad if we're not involved or even in in, in, in maybe hive this off and and, uh, and give uh, porno a, a bit of a, a respite. But. Even the notion, and, th- and this is uh, something that's been haunting me since nine eleven. Um, you know, there's there's a, it's the kind of the, the the indispensable nation notion, which on many levels I agree with. I, I lean, think that's true. I lean into it um, mm-hmm. um, in in ways that make a lot of my libertarian friends um, call me a not libertarian. Um, <laughs> no, it's just not. That's just true. That's just, just yeah. totally true. But um, 
but the problem with that is the problem with uh, with uh, asserting one of the problems with asserting you know our responsibility over that twenty mile strait that is pretty far away from where we live um, is that it prevents other people from asserting their own responsibility for things like the the way that we think about lots of stuff in the world is that if local people have more responsibility for their affairs, including and especially the responsibility to make mistakes, to fuck it up. Um, but like it's theirs. They own it mm-hmm. um, uh, is is a way to eventually muddle through and they come out on the other end. Uh, I don't they is a, a, a amorphous term, maybe. Well, right no, now. I'll tell you who shares that worldview. Donald Trump. When we were experiencing these uh attacks, sabotage, piracy in the Straits of Hormuz, another vital shipping lane. Mm-hmm. What was Donald Trump's response was to say, we should have an international military response to this. The Navy should be there. The Navy, the world's Navy should be there. You know who should be patrolling this? Not us, China. Mm-hmm. Do you guys really think that China, the Chinese <laughs> Navy, would be looking after the interests of global commerce sorry, no, in the, the Straits red, of Hormuz? We have, we have an editorial uh, style guide here, the red, red China. Chinese. Yeah, yes. the, yeah the Tricoms, as I prefer. Quite honestly, no, but international maritime uh, sure. commerce and navigation is, again, one of the obligations of the world's global power. It was Britain's before it was our responsibility. And the reason why it's our responsibility is because international commerce helps us maintain one of those grand core strategic objectives, mm-hmm. the international institutions that we hope to integrate the rest of the world in. Because when you develop a, a stable, competent middle class, mm-hmm. any regime begins to rely on that middle class mm-hmm. as a source of regime stability. And they represent a check on aggressive international action. Without that middle class, that regime has a lot more liberty, freedom to engage in aggressive actions in its in its region. And those quickly result in fears of spheres of influence, blocks of power that effectively shut us off from access to those regions. Mm-hmm. So it is in our interest to maintain international commerce, global commerce. Donald Trump doesn't understand it. He thinks the Chinese will see to our interests in the Straits <laughs> of Hormuz. I don't. I think that's I think that's actually a fair point. I think the the challenge I have is I can imagine you policing these naval corridors for commerce to be able to move about freely and perhaps even empowering some of the private companies who have to to, to go about um, traversing these lanes to maybe like carry some weaponry of their own so that they could defend themselves against, I don't know, like Somali pirates and shit. Um, but I can imagine you policing these these places that are important to us without necessarily getting deeply involved in like the conflict in Yemen. I mean, that is the objective. I mean, we're not deeply involved in the conflict of Yemen. We're doing exactly what we would do in the absence of deployments, which is supplying proxy powers to see to our interests. And they do it really messy and aggressively yeah, and I mean, badly. I, I'm suggesting that even that is perhaps a bridge too far and that one could still maintain maritime superiority without having to get involved in that conflict let, in a deep and significant way. Let me way. actually like, sketch out the worst case scenario that we're trying to prevent and actually intervening on the side of a shitty regime um, in a shitty civil war, right, for this uh, case. What happens if we just say, fuck it, straight to Hormuz, not our responsibility? What happens? What, well, what is the thing that we like that happens that no longer happens? What is the result of the people who now control it that they get to do that they can't do now or do differently now? What is the what the, as specific as possible? What happens? Uh, the worst case scenario is Iran mines the strait, um, shuts off 
global commerce into the strait. So like, it's, like, like pretend, pretend, I'm, pretend I'm stupid. Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, it's pretty easy <laughs> to imagine. But uh, uh, so like whose commerce gets shut off to where? I mean, there's a lot of international shipping that goes through there. Most of Western Europe, China, East Asia, Africa, the United States, and a lot of traffic goes in and out of this place, and it's transporting oil mostly. Um, so then you have the oil market. Now we can, because of fracking and because of our international energy independence, we have the capacity now to stave off shocks to the oil market. As does Saudi Arabia, they can increase production and we can release strategic reserves and we can stop a shock. But we can't do that forever. Uh, so eventually the oil oil market would would so increase, the price of oil would increase substantially. Europe would feel the pain a lot worse than we would. Basically, Europe would break. Be, Iran would be able to sell it to oil. Saudi Arabia wouldn't. But, but, you, but like, you're talking no, about, like, look, but what, you said, what, what but you said we would mine the straits. What is the I mean, thing? Who is, who is moving oil through there? Is Europe, Iran so moving oil? Because the cons- they have to sell that shit, too. They can't eat it. They've got to sell that shit, too. Right. Right. So the concern is that European um, political will would break. Uh, at that point, there and Europe is pretty prone to like, uh, being. Go, uh, go back to the, the 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 pragmatics of it. What stops? What 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 happened? I mean, like, who can't do what when this happens? Right? Who can't sell their stuff? So a ship can't go into Iran that Iran doesn't want it to go in there. So that would be not just military vessels, but commercial vessels. So any vessel that it doesn't. It's not that Iran would say, "I only want to sell my oil." They would say no, no oil. How about we stop oil? And at which point the entire international community tells Iran to go fuck itself. And, well, and, and that Iran's, would require a military response. If it didn't require well. a military no, even response. even if it didn't require a military response. Well, they, that's not the they, fear. The fear is that it doesn't require a military response. It requires a diplomatic response. But the diplomatic response would be an obsequious, capitulatory response from Western Europe, which would sever the American alliance and would jeopardize strategic objective number two, which is the maintenance of the global world order that emerged from World War II and emerged triumphant after the Cold but War. But how does, how does Iran not suffer horrifying consequences if it mines that straight? Yeah, it, you talked about the reason why it suffers horrifying consequences is because the United States is the guarantor of those consequences. Absent no, but, American I'm, guarantees. But no, I think the question is: Would they not suffer significant consequences by gumming up the works of the economy and making it impossible for people to export more than they oil? are now? The Iranian economy is in shambles yeah, as a result it, of American could sanctions be worse. and Western European sanctions. Yeah, it, it could, could be worse. worse. We and could making be it impossible for them to sell oil or anyone else for that matter. No, that, like, could, that well, would be worse. Iran would do it in a heartbeat because their objective, their strategic objective, mm-hmm. is to put pressure on Europe to say, okay, we give. And we're going to give up on these sanctions and we're going to go back to investing in your oil projects and development and infrastructure. But wouldn't they not give in that moment? Because you just screwed Europe over. I have literally no faith that Europe won't capitulate in the face of a threat. Europe is very good at capitulating in the face of a foreign threat. Hmm. All right. Well, I don't know if we'll we'll reach consensus on this, but I think the conversation has been interesting for me in in a lot of respects. I didn't um, even bang the table saying no, shipping you, lanes. You didn't, which I think is <laughs> which I actually think is very good. That's, one thing that's restraint. One thing I wonder Does that happen about a lot. It's it is it's kind of yeah, point of yeah. contention. One thing I do wonder about though, and and might be worth revisiting, is there there are some major narratives that have shaped a lot of the media coverage of the conflict and the strike itself. And you hit on some of these things before, but I actually think there's some broad points of agreement here. Um, The question of whether or not the strike was legal and whether or not this was an assassination, just going around the table briefly. No, you were already on the record saying this was not illegal um, and this was not an assassination. Um, Lunatic, crazy libertarian, non-interventionist Camille Foster says, I mean, we do have an AUMF in place. 
I think it's kind of a, 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 a shitty AUMF. We should probably do something about this. But we what, do, is, what does it say again? I'm... Anyone who was involved in 9-11 or any of their confederates, which has essentially been it's, so broadly defined that this, this, totally, this totally applies based on the way that we've gone about doing it. Yeah, look, it's just it's harder to make the argument that this was an extra legal assassination when the United States is engaged in counterterrorism activities on third party soil at the invitation of the host government, Mm -hmm. literally like a mile from where these events took place. Mm -hmm. And the commander responsible for those events is in your crosshairs. It's just hard to make the legal argument that this is an assassination of a foreign official when he's the head of a hybrid terrorist organization that is designated a terrorist organization by the United States and the State Department. So I think there's there's broad agreement on that. And whether or not there ought to be some alteration to policy to make it more difficult for the president to carry out a strike like this unilaterally without consulting Congress is certainly a conversation that is very worth having but that is probably what we ought to do as it was opposed also to simply calling it an assassination. Super and, worth having in 2011 when mm-hmm. Nancy Pelosi, instead of saying, hey, look, you know, this war powers resolution of 1973 is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, in March, April, May, June of 2011, she's like, no, I don't think that that's that really uh, applies to Libya. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, right, read the text of the war powers resolution. It's all mm-hmm. about like national emergencies. Yeah. Right. What was the national emergency in Libya? Do we remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So just to put a, a you know, lim- a limiting principle on my bloodthirsty neoconservatism, um, there <laughs> really you. was no national interest at stake <laughs> Here. in Libya. Oh, in Libya. OK. No, um, there were a lot of national interests at stake for Western Europe, which is one of the reasons why we led from behind in that conflict. Western Europe has a whole bunch of interests in making sure the African coast is stable and, and they have commercial relations and what have you. But we really don't. So when a humanitarian intervention becomes, and I I, I sympathize with the calls for a humanitarian intervention, even air operations, I could stomach it. But there really was no American core interest at stake in Libya. And that's one of the reasons why policymakers should rethink humanitarian interventions. Doctrines like that, responsibility to protect, those things are designed to commit the United States to theaters of conflict where they have no interest at stake. Mm Mm-hmm. The um, the one question that is raised um, by something you just said, Matt, is this notion of an imminent threat, or maybe, maybe it was something you said, no, but I think you both made allusions to it. In this particular case, the president and other members of the administration have suggested that there was an imminent threat that they were responding to um, with the strike, although they have yet to give any sort of detail about what that imminent threat was, only to say that it wasn't domestic, it was something over there. Um, I think it's worth acknowledging that they've been pretty shitty uh, in terms of providing any sort of rational explanation. And by they, we mean for what they mean by every administration for 50 years. Well, Mike Pompey, I mean, there might but, be operational. Yes, there might that's be, true, too. But I mean, in this particular context. So there could yes. be a nefarious reason for that. There could be operational considerations for why you haven't heard a lot of this from the administration officials. Public reporting out of Reuters says that. We had um, officials on the ground. They're not American officials, military officials with Iraq and militias who are speaking with Reuters reporters said that they had Katushka rockets flowing over the border from Iran and shoulder fire anti-aircraft rockets that'll take down helicopters. And Mm -hmm. that was the sort of thing that was an imminent threat that we couldn't abide. But why couldn't the, the administration say that? Operational considerations. Maybe they don't. Maybe it's loose intel. They don't want to be held to it. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. That like, all I can tell you is that has been reported. It's not as though the, there's no evidence to suggest that there were no imminent threat. And also, you only have to believe your own eyes. Look, they have been, rockets have been raining down on American positions now for two months. They were producing casualties. It's a little naive to suggest that that didn't. No threat 
of future rocket attacks existed, despite the fact that we were suffering rocket attacks on a new daily basis. Well, one thing that we haven't talked about um, is the fact that the president's friends um, are perhaps his most interesting critics uh, with respect to this particular strike. And by friends, I'm referring specifically to Rand Paul who's had some pretty critical things to say, um, as has Tucker Carlson, um, which has actually gotten him, earned him a little bit of praise from Brian Stelter, who has been a guest on this podcast in the past, who I, I believe said something about, what was the, the exact quote? Does anyone remember the, the like veil of propaganda has been punctured by Tucker Carlson's critique? Did he go that the Trump, Something along those lines, yeah. I mean, it's um, just notable that within Fox, there are critics. Mm-hmm which is healthy for Mm -hmm. Fox. But there are a couple of aspects of the, this that I thought were interesting, at least worth acknowledging one media matters um, did go after Tucker Carlson because apparently his reasons for reaching the ostensibly right conclusion are all wrong. He's doing it because he's a racist monster who hates immigrants and wants to keep them out of the country. I mean, probably, Um, but related, (laughs) but a secondary point is both Rand and Tucker have been very careful to couch their criticism of the president's actions in a way to suggest that it's not the president, it's all of his advisors who are giving him bad advice. Tucker went so far as to malign John Bolton when he was really laying into this particularly bad decision from his standpoint um, made by the president of the United States. And apparently no one gave him the memo that John Bolton doesn't work for the president anymore. I don't know if anyone else waft of of him has interesting insights related to that, but that stood out to me. It won't rise up to interesting, but no, uh, no, I think what all these guys are trying to do is to maintain their lane to him. They're they're in Rand Paul's case, just like Lindsey Graham, but to a different degree, he wants to be able to be in the golf cart in Mm Mar-a-Lago. Right. And so when, like I once uh, uh, interviewed uh, Rand on Sirius XM and like, like I just picture you and Lindsay with like your putters out in the parking lot, like fighting each other, and uh, and like there's been reporting that's kind of like that. So they're, <laughs> they're each because you know that's that's the stuff both of those dudes care about, mm-hmm. and they're totally at, golf is what you're saying. Yes, yeah. golf and putting, yeah. you know, and, and in particular handicaps and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, that's that's why they tell themselves when they wake up in the morning why they're doing what they're doing, why they are being both of them obsequious to the president to the point where people who have liked both of them. I don't know if you ever liked Lindsey Graham. I never had that problem, but um, I had the problem of liking <laughs> Rand Paul um, and and of liking Rand Paul. I, mm-hmm. and, and I still do. Uh, and I'm glad that he's there. But like it's embarrassing when you go through the motions of keeping your access to Donald Trump. You have to start using language like witch hunt. Uh, all the time. In Lindsey Graham's case, at some point, uh, he was defending Donald Trump's language in saying that what he's experiencing right now in the impeachment process is equivalent to a lynching. Like, God, that's a good word. Just not the word. Good not word. the word, Lindsey. Yeah. Um, but like you do a lot that. Of emotional resonance. Because Lindsey really does care about not just being Noah Rothman, but like being Noah Rothman like seven times the amount that Nora Rothman even wants to be Nora Rothman. <laughs> I don't even know that either. Uh, but like, and Rand Paul does too. Rand Paul thinks that he is the, this bulwark uh-huh. against, uh, you know, the terrible neocons trying to infiltrate themselves around Donald Trump. And so that's what they do. Um, I, I think that for me, the, uh, the moment that, that like the oh shit moment um, in this process, in addition to all the other ones, was when Rand Paul uh, said, 
I think now this is going to be a, an escalatory situation. Like, mm-hmm. because he does play golf with a guy and sort of uh, had, knows a little bit more than we do about some stuff there. And he was being pretty morose about what's going to happen next. So I think he's had some inclination that there's targeting going on and, 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 and a mindset there that's going to be a, a pretty um, uh, escalatory and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the last thing I'd mentioned related to any of this um, for the moment is this interesting circumstance where there's been talk about the Iraqis asking the United States to remove their troops. And Trump's, uh, as it's been reported, response to this suggestion um, being that we're not leaving and if we did leave, we would hit them with sanctions that would make the Iranian sanctions look like child's play because we've spent a lot of fucking money here. And then we're not leaving until we get our money, which I've often suggested that government kind of operates like a criminal gang or explicitly operates like a criminal gang. That is the very first time that I've heard the president of the United States use language that I would expect to find in like a mob movie. We're not leaving until we get our money. This is a nice little <laughs> shop you got here. We're going to fuck some shit up. Fuck some shit. Give us our money. Pay us our money. Uh, this is why he's so ill-suited to the moment. I mean, right. He, or, because he to doesn't the, off, the office euphemism? he holds. Um, so this, the Iranian parliament is a body composed of more Iranian assets than any place outside Iran. Um, and it's pretty much wholly illegitimate at this point. Um, the government was responsible for allowing these anti-Iranian protests. So you mean to the be, Ar- Iraqi parliament? The Iraqi yeah. parliament yes. was yeah. responsible for allowing these um, protests, these anti-Iranian protests that formed organically last month to be slaughtered. Almost 500 casualties. Um, and Iranian militias, in, in part the Iranian government, was responsible for that response. And because it was so devastating to this government's legitimacy, the prime minister resigned. Mm-hmm. He's no longer the prime minister's caretaker, but he's no longer the prime minister. The Iraqi president rejected the candidacy of a successor who is overtly pro-Iranian. So they were really sensitive about being pro-Iranian before this happened. Um, and then you had this vote, which is largely symbolic vote. It's toothless. Mm-hmm. Um, you can afford to ignore it. But the president just decided not to ignore it and ended up for sacrificing a tactical advantage. I'm not even sure if it really matters, but there's certainly no advantage to be secured by pretending this is a real thing and threatening sanctions and inflaming domestic sentiment and political sentiment in Baghdad. Why would you do it? You have secured no advantage as a result. You might maybe sacrificed a little bit. Maybe, maybe not, but you definitely didn't gain anything out of the deal. It's a lot of to be said for the same, uh, the thing that he said about um, cultural sites. I mean, what's the point of that? It's not as though that's ever going to happen. It's just to bluster. And maybe that makes some people happy in his domestic coalition, but it certainly secures no strategic advantages from a from a statecraft point of view. Uh, likewise, you know, just about every other tweet where he inflames the domestic opposition in the United States and Democrats saying, I hereby declare this tweet to be my legal authority to execute <laughs> whatever strikes. Post I mean, yeah, it's just it's just stupid. And it, why would you do it? Just to there he is. Oh, my. <laughs> Michael Moynihan burst into the room. I gave you explicit uh, instructions and you've what, already Benny? fucked it up. What is the guy? I don't know what he's talking about. Get the Magnum out of the freezer. This what? wasn't hard. Magnum out of the freezer? What are you talking about? It's a big bottle There's of champagne. There's a gun in the freezer. Where? Oh. Hey, Noah. Hey. Good to see you, man. How's it going? <laughs> I just want to say that I have no idea what's going on. At the 75-minute, we have to do this all over again. we are at war. 
That's what I've heard. Well, no sense. It's all fine. I've been yeah. um, drinking at a whiskey bar on somebody else's expense account. So oh, good. I'm going to let you guys handle it. And I'm just here to, to like, you know, hang out afterwards. Yeah. Great. Good to see you guys. That's really good to Great. know. Good. That's, I'm so happy. All right. I'll see you guys That's later. Nice that he's here. Okay. Should, I, should I leave now? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt, Matt stepped out to, buy, to grab a big, massive oh, bottle. Oh, God. I don't need any more booze. Oh, it happened. <laughs> okay. we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Oh, I just um, don't need any more. How's know. Noah been doing? He's been doing okay? And Noah's doing I'm getting great. my ass handed to Really? No, that's not true. Are you getting all... <laughs> that's not yeah. true. He's he's putting up an able defense. Um, and, Wait, and are quite you wearing frankly, a it's George not Wallace pin? I am indeed. <laughs> I am indeed. But there's a backstory and the we'll get into it. The only thing that's more shocking than us being at war with Iran right now is that you're wearing a George Wallace pin. Right. Well, only because there's no possibility of him winning. Yeah. See? Or the Iranians winning? Are you going to say that? Well, I, yeah. Define winning. Define losing. Um, so can can someone tell me, because everyone will love this at home when they're listening, like, oh, I have to listen to this. What, what happened? Oh, my God. <laughs> got some shit where, happened. Where the fuck were you? All I saw, I was having a thing. I had a thing. I'll tell you guys about it later. I drank a little bit. Oh, my God. 75-minute um, <laughs> mark. What? <laughs> I, I love it. And you were half an hour late, too. So, oh, yeah. well, I'm allowed to be late. Yeah, no. I've gone into this. No, I saw. I listened, I listened to. I listened to NPR on the way over. Yeah, and uh, so you have some idea what's going. It on. It was in Farsi. I don't know. We've, yeah. I thought we already lost. <laughs> right, our, our national language. Oh God. Um, <laughs> yeah. So apparently they're just killing uh, Iraqi soldiers at this point, right? If they're hitting right. American bases, is that? Has anyone considered this? What do you? What well, do you there'll mean? be Iraqi yeah. soldiers at uh, like. Well, this on was American. this was Noah's opening gambit. Oh shit! Yeah. Okay. Gambit. That's I'm, why that I'm sorry. cheapens it. I'm sorry. Why, I'm sorry. That's not that's fair. That's why I don't. That's not I fair. should not say anything. Okay, I'm done. Do you have a perspective on what that not means? Yet. That we're not hitting people who, not or at yet. least Americans, aren't dying at this point. Well, we don't know. Yeah. I mean, we'll find out soon. But um, but you think that uh, you agree with Noah? Then who you didn't hear express this yeah. perspective? Yeah, but good. you agree with Noah that if in fact Americans die, this changes the complexion of things dramatically, and if they do sure. not, sure. The perhaps the Trump administration ignores this. That's exactly what I would say. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm not you, sure. The two of we'll, you are in we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. And like, well, know, that would be the smart response. That'd be the smart yes. response. Yeah. Is there is there any guarantee that we'll get the smart response out of this particular administration? No, of course not. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, but it's also a fool's errand to try to, to try to you know war game this right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what Twitter's for. It's not yeah. what the thoughtful <laughs> conversation that we have is for. So yeah. So I will. I will. Um, keep myself out of this until until we figure out what's going on i'll read lindsey graham's uh, testimony oh, tonight on hannity mm. oh boy um testimony saying this to the uh, iranian government mm-hmm. your fate is in your own hands you continue this crap you're going to wake up one day out of the oil business oh that's not so nose right it sounded like straight it was to hormones. tough but it wasn't if case. i'm trying to decode lindsey's bluster there is that a retaliatory response to Iranian, not just military targets, but domestic energy and infrastructure targets would be on the table. Mm. I don't think that's true. That sounds like Lindsay just being Lindsay. Um, but who knows? I mean, in a menu of options in the event of a real full-on all-out conflict, sure, that would be on the table. I don't see that happening. Oh, and let's give Noah Rothman some perhaps preemptive credit here. Mm-hmm. Pentagon source tells me, and I don't really know who this me is, but I, I follow him, so it must be true. That's Jamie Detmer, yeah. Uh, no U.S. casualties from Iranian missile attack on U.S. air base in Iraq. Well, that's great, but that's also just, you know, step one. Now the president has to be wise enough to understand that he's affected precisely the response that he hoped to affect from Iran. All this, as much as it's... Uh, 
destabilizing and threatening to have ballistic and cruise missile attacks from Iranian soil against American positions in Iraq. It is not the response that would be the worst case scenario. It's an escalation that represents a Mm de-escalation, and we should see it as that, declare victory, and chill. No, I think that's about right. (laughs) All right. Well, I missed the whole thing. I can't say in the anything. event in the event that this is the last that this is a de-escalatory response and we do not see the kind of asymmetric attacks from Iran we've seen over the last eight months that necessitated the response that we uh, did on December 28th Agreed and January 3. Um, if we stop seeing that, then we will have restored deterrence and we will have affected the kind of policy that I think we should be pursuing in the region. And I, I will say that I hope that's right. I hope that's right because I don't want there to be a broader escalation. Yeah. And um, I hope yeah, I'd like, does, I'd like yeah. for this to end. Um, I hope that everybody does. Yeah. So, did we discuss I'm anything about under. Iran tonight? By the way, no, <laughs> it's all around, yeah. all around so far. Yeah. Um, you know, we're closing out now. I, our lovely, fantastic uh, audio engineer told me that as I was coming in. Uh, so um, <laughs> let's. Are, are we closing well, out on Iran too? No, I mean we could talk about anything. We could talk about the Golden Globes. Um, we could talk about. Oh. I mean, look, that's about as important as a potential conflict in Iran, Here's obviously. I wish it happened before so we could hear what um, Patricia Arquette had to say about it. What's that? Oh, shit. Wow. Look at that. What's this? Yeah. Oh, 1,000 patrons on Patreon. Look that's very that. good. We yeah. Delighted to hear that. Wow. That's great. Thank all of you 1, so much. 1,000. Jeez. That's very sweet um, of everybody who, who um, gave the, us Spiro Agnew swag. Per, perhaps we'll only nod in the direction of this because I don't know that there's much else to say, but John Bolton has suggested that he is willing to testify um, if, in fact, the Senate calls witnesses. It's not obvious that they will, but... That's a thing. I don't know that there's anything else to say about that at the moment. The last time John Bolton suggested he might have something to say about this, he spun it into an opportunity to ask people for money. money yeah, I'm not going to forget that. And yeah. I suspect that at some point in the future, he's going to start hawking gold or some shit. Yeah, it would like be that, great so. if he opened like a chain of restaurants, <laughs> like, like a retired NFL star or something. Yeah. But, why, but John Bolton's fried chicken. You would assume that John Bolton does not want to testify in any way that would be would have detrimental to the president. Yeah, of course. Because why? He, well, he did something that he wanted to do. Yeah, but he gets rid of him and he gets Pence. Oh, I guess so. It's not like we stop. Well, keep going. And then you have Handmaiden's Tale, the United oh, States, right? That's happening. how that works. Yeah. All right. That's well, what I've been told anyways. Yeah, I'm just not going to say much tonight and say just, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like, I will listen. say one thing. One thing I wanted to say that yeah. is totally off topic and yeah. maybe get us off of Iran is We're that, um, that. No, yeah, I, I know because I'm 75 minutes late. Um, <laughs> But I saw today, I got a, 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 a ti- a, it got a Times alert, by mm-hmm. the way, is that um, Lizzie Wurzel died today, mm. um, the author of Prozac Nation, and somebody who I knew um, um, reasonably well and uh, had a lot of fun times with and fun uh, evenings with, uh, who was completely and totally insane. The craziest person I've ever met in my life, but amazingly fun. And um, I was looking something up uh, that an email that she sent me today and I found an email uh, the last one that I found was a photo that she took of a series of letters that Bruce Springsteen had written her um, after I think a, a profile she did about him at, at, in um, Esquire magazine and we had a number of conversations a few I know fifth column listeners who have uh, mentioned my love of the replacements is that she had um, a kind of thing with uh, Paul Westerberg too 
and had a number of uh, um, evenings and conversations about her time with Paul Westerberg, which was incredibly funny and incredibly enlightening. And uh, it's very, very sad. It's very sad to see that uh, that Lizzie um, died of cancer after um, having it, I think, for for four, four or five years. And uh, but uh, sucks and, and horrible to hear. But uh, go back and read Prozac Nation. It's actually a funny book. It's a funny time capsule. It's a, the most 90s thing ever, which is why Matt Welch would love it. Yeah. Yeah. Did you did you read that at the time? I didn't at the time. I read I read some of the other uh ones, the um you know, uh the you know what I'm talking about. The essays was it? <laughs> yeah. All right. Man, it really fucking wheels came off the second I walked in, didn't it? I, I sure thought, did. I thought maybe you were talking about Stacey Abrams um ghost written oh, not man. ghost written, but the the secretly written under the pen name <laughs> Ramona Clay, yeah. Um yeah. sexcapade <laughs> novels. Moynihan, which, did you get them yet? I was going to buy the ebook, but it was mm-hmm. like four bucks. Yeah. And I was like, that's a lot. <laughs> I mean, this, she's written like four or five of these Eight. books. Eight, Eight books. Eight books. Oh, so did anyone know about this before today? I sure did. It apparently had been published, but I was not aware of it. I didn't know. And are they like bodice rippers? That's the. Yeah, I think so. Are they what? Bodice, bodice rippers. rippers. I mean, they're, that's a sexy thing. Yeah. The bodice. They're, they're, they're. they're they're very popular I mean, among, the people, among the people who got that audience. Yeah. <laughs> like the most Jamaican I've ever seen. Like, <laughs> Bottas. <laughs> what you say about Bottas? Bottas boy. I just want to say that I don't think Stacey Abrams uh, could write a sexy book that would get me excited. just want wow. to say that. Wow. Yeah. Well, For obvious that's, reasons. Maybe that's the but let us know like if you think that uh, Michael should do <laughs> an interpretive <laughs> reading and perhaps one of our future Patreon dispatches. Uh, I think, I think we'll devote next, an entire Patreon dispatch I think the next Patreon Dispatch is just me doing an audio book yeah. <laughs> of just the first two chapters yeah. of Stacey Abrams. Not the first two. You have to find the steamiest sections. Like just, just do the sex scenes. I mean, she's making a mistake out of the manhood. game if she's not doing the sexy stuff. Yeah. Okay. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah. Weren't uh, we going to thank some of the people whose booze we've been drinking? We will do that. Will. One, one thing, one thing before uh-uh. we do that. Uh-uh. Oh no, this is this is super quick. He's um, going to say he's not black. No, I'm he's not going to do that. <laughs> we've, we've been Colin Kaepernick. Of, we've been through all of that yeah. so many times at this point. If you don't know, then I'm not sure what you're doing here. Um, no, this story about Facebook banning deep fakes is of interest to me, and I think worth people paying attention to. The The response to it in some corners has been that this does not potentially go far enough, that they want a greater censorship regime from Facebook to prevent deep fakes, which if you're unaware of it, these are digitally altered videos whereby folks use some sort of algorithm to make it seem as though a person is saying something that they didn't actually say. And as opposed to it just being audio with someone using a a fake voice or somehow grabbing bits of audio from other contexts to make people say things, you've got the audio in the video. And in some instances, this stuff looks incredibly authentic. And this is inspired in large part because fairly recently, both Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden have had sort of high profile incidents where content was circulating online wherein they were saying things or at least seeming to suggest things that were not quite in context. I think in Nancy well, Pelosi's it, it case, was, she was, was like a, stuttering or stammering. Yeah, but it or wasn't, that like wasn't that. a deep fake. That was like they slowed down it, the audio. I think precisely right. Yeah. But this is the thing. Yeah. It's actually quite difficult to define what a sure. deep fake is. And at some point, like comedically, you might want to create some content um, or perhaps for some other effect, you might want to create some content where you do like a montage and it's a bunch of incidents of, say, Donald Trump saying something awful and stupid and egregious. The bottom line here is <laughs> that all of these demands that Facebook do something, anything about all of the horrible things that are completely undermining our democracy have 
potentially dangerous repercussions that folks are simply not willing to contend with. And unfortunately, I think a lot of the people who are sort of most disappointed by this not going far enough are the same people that are either calling for Facebook to be taken over by the government and nationalized because they're imperative to our <laughs> national security because they are yeah. the only ones that guarantee our free speech the or simply broken up. Um, I, I think this is the wrong course of action. And I think there, there are plenty of opportunities for us to say things beyond Facebook and Twitter and plenty of ways for us to contend with the fact that the people are publishing things that aren't true. It has always been the case since publishing has existed mm-hmm. before the printing press. We've contended with people perpetrating fake things that are not true. And just as we were able to determine any reasonable person anyways, that the Biden shit was fake and the Pelosi yeah. shit was fake. I think we'll be okay here, people, but instead we'll freak the fuck out and we will insist on things like this. Um, I, I, I don't, mind Facebook creating policies all its own, I do think there's something to be concerned about when we're all clamoring for them to do this to protect us from our own stupidity. The vast majority of, exact that's exactly it, the vast majority of the Democratic freakout about Facebook since 2017 has been underlined by a presumption that's pretty hard to ignore, which is that you're just too stupid Incredibly to know stupid. what you're reading. Yes. And you need to be protected from that. And it's really just conservatives, Mm -hmm. right? It's not really the left because they're generally focused on Facebook memes where you have the devil and God hand wrestling over Hillary Clinton. I mean, that was literally a blow up in a congressional on the floor of the House. Yeah. That meme was presented as something that's a nefarious threat to American uh, sovereignty. And now you have media institutions like CNN, which are aggressively policing the Babylon Bee and exclusively the Babylon Bee, in part because (laughs) they're funny and also because it plays to a conservative audience. They're not policing other institutions that are parodic. No, no, you're right about most things except for the fact that Babylon Bee is funny. Um, beyond that, I agree. Um, the I one find thing humor that I wonder, in so many things. Uh, uh, <laughs> the only thing I wonder about is, um, you know, I will reveal something, is that I will be doing a show sometime soon, a political show. Woo! Mm. I'll be on television. Mm. Uh, details to come. Mm. One of the things that I pitched in an early meeting was getting people who do deep fakes and do them quite well. And um, just it's kind of like a moment of Zen sort of thing. But I wanted to do a deep fake of Donald Trump being normal to give people a sense of what it would be like if, Tom, if like you live in a normal society. And like, like the Ronald Reagan, Phil yeah, Hartman. It, well, exactly right. Yeah. And like where he's like, you know, like angry, like the Girl Scouts are in there. And then he's like, come on. Like he's screaming and shouting. <laughs> and it would just be like, let's do Donald Trump as the most normal person in the world, being respectful to the journalists asking questions, getting nuanced, smart answers. This is going to be illegal. And I don't. Well, it's going to be illegal. By the way, when I suggested this, it got a fairly decent response from the room. But there was also the idea of like, oh, we'd have to really label it as a deepfake or as you know satire or something. And I'm like, well, shouldn't we have some respect for the viewer that they could figure this out? And now I wonder, <laughs> could out we even could we even break this off as a little sort of chunk and put it on Facebook? I'm not sure we could. No. No, maybe maybe not. We don't know. Um, But is there a special I I guess the question is, is there a special, you know, exclusion for for satire? I think we're waiting for Facebook's policy to be defined. And there's there's a hearing this week as well. Um, But I, I don't know is the answer. And there's an arbitrariness to these to these kinds of policies anytime they're instituted. But but to be clear, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like the 
the the gif that's common among uh, fifth column listeners of you flexing. It's usually yeah, yeah, done yeah. with a Ben Price poll. Mm-hmm. But what was the what was the yeah, best was much moment better of shape. I was in Greece. Sedition. <laughs> no, that's not you. Beautiful big head. No, that's a deep shape. fake. That's no, no, like that's, that's like not a deep fake. That's a person who's no no no. Come on, no one no one believes this. Great fucking seriously. You are no one believes. You've never put on a little bit of weight. You don't have to shame me. I I I was and I will be again. Um, especially because I have my prescription for Adderall. I don't know about you, <laughs> but, but there really is just a, u- a universe of foul opinion around this. Um, one particularly bad um, piece of, of writing about this was on uh, Boing Boing Today, um, and oh, Fisher linked to it, permitting the growth of monopoly is a form of government censorship. Um, I think that the uh, I think that the the piece is cluttered with um, bad thinking and phony uh, conclusions on the internet. Um, and <laughs> I, I think it ought to be banned. P- writing like Whoa. this ought to be banned. That's what I think. So the one thing I will say about Facebook before we go and drink the rest of this Magnum, and I already I just want to say that anything I say, take with a grain of salt, because I came in here having drank like eighty thousand glasses of whiskey before right. I came in. So yeah. and immediately so very nice, grabbed, uh, grabbed the booze uh, that was here. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well you gotta keep it going. <laughs> That's right? fine. Um hair of the dog. Well I think the thing about Facebook is particularly amongst people I know, is that it's used less and less. I haven't used Facebook in ages. And Facebook is ultimately going to be Internet Explorer. And do you remember the antitrust suits in Europe Microsoft, about Microsoft's yeah. browser? Mm-hmm. Like who the hell uses Internet and now the new one is I, I guess Microsoft Edge is the browser that replaced it because it was such a crappy browser is that, you know, Facebook is a crappy service in a lot of ways and they're trying and so, and all these things that like do, you know, Facebook live and all these doing their own content and none of it's really sticking. They're not making their own content that is competing in any way with other platforms, whether it be, you know, Amazon prime and, and, and Netflix or other kind of digital only things that don't, don't touch Hollywood. I don't know if it's going to last. I mean, I just know fewer and fewer people that actually communicate or use Facebook. And everyone is taking out the cudgels for Mark, Mark Zuckerberg. And like even in the, the Emmys. Um, Golden Gloves. Whatever the fuck it is, I don't. Mm-hmm. I, don't I don't. know. I remember because of Beyonce's dress, which oh, the was one gold. that looked like her ex- uh, shoulders. I exploded? remember because her the, shoulders. They were like explosions. The That's the shoulders. That, we that was the explosion. The sho- you know, I'm not the same as you. That's true. We have a different that I'm hinting to people uh, about my private life. Well, because yeah, yeah you like so, men, it's just fine. I, well, it's fine. There's nothing don't wrong with stop that. Stop it. It didn't say there's Why anything wrong with that. I don't care. None of your business. I, it, it isn't. Stop <laughs> Stop intruding upon my, my yeah. private life about yeah. uh, Beyonce. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but it was Sasha Baron Cohen came out and atta- like did a joke about Mark Zuckerberg yeah, again. Yeah. And it's like, I would say it's a joke. Don't get upset about these things. I don't get upset about it anyway. Mm-hmm. But he had previously. He's not, he's not joking. No, he <laughs> previously made this kind of thing. Yeah. And like, I get the instinct. Like, because the things that Sasha Baron Cohen dislikes, I also dislike, mm-hmm. of like scumbag Holocaust deniers on, on uh, Facebook. But, you know, it's like, don't overvalue Facebook's not only current power, maybe, it, maybe it's powerful now. Right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, ultimately, it's going to disappear, right? Yeah. This is not going to be a Facebook. I mean, this is going to be Friendster. If, if past this prologue. If past this yes, prologue, it don't, will die. Just everybody relax. It, the, the notion of them continuing to gobble up every single potential competitor, I mean, it's absurd. Bing didn't win. Google did. And Google came out of nowhere and won. IBM didn't win at the moment. Apple. Is. When they tried to make we'll see how herb. these things work. Yeah, did you bang it? didn't didn't work out well. Did you bang it has not worked that well. Maybe maybe eventually it will, but I'm that. I'm not afraid. Yeah, 
trying to make um, awesome. I think I think we could probably get to the end of this. Um, I went to the office. I went to the office today, <laughs> and I hadn't I hadn't been there in a little while, and I was confronted by about a dozen boxes filled with all sorts of wonderful booze. trinkets and booze. booze. And I brought two the contents of two of the boxes, anyways, here um, today. So I want to give shout outs to a few of you. Um, I also want to say that over the course of the next couple of weeks, despite the fact that I'll be in Hong Kong next week, we will be bringing in the booze and we will take care of this backlog and we will say thank you to all of you wonderful people. Um, but first, Spencer Smith sent us a massive bottle of uh, champagne, which we had to quickly put into the freezer and are currently drinking. Thank you very much, Spencer, for this Spencer's uh, one of our best. generous, Spencer's generous. Absolutely one Spencer. of our best. Apparently yes. you're one of the yes. best. Yes. Um, I mean, you could have sent a more expensive bottle of champagne. What the fuck are you doing? I'm just saying. You could, you could have sent the good shit. You could have sent the good shit. Because... Great. I'm challenging this him is to be better. Really, really good it's not shit. A challenge. It's not a challenge, dude. I'm married to a French woman. I'm married to a French woman. Doesn't like Beyonce. I just had a New Year's Eve party. Mm-hmm. Everyone brought their champagne. Yeah. This is better than all the champagne okay. that all the French people brought. Premium, premium economy will never be first class. I'm just gonna put it out there exactly <laughs> like that. Okay. I'm like right. red five. I bring champagne. <laughs> champagne and ripple. Um, so we want to thank you for that. But we we had a second box um, which contained some alcohol as well as this swaggy pin that I'm wearing that oh features uh, George Wallace's vigis, vis, visage. Um, Sage Newman. Uh, a state Senate communications director for the Senate Republicans, because well, I know that because he sent you, me a card. Should you actually be sen- saying um, people's names? I, I think in this particular case, oh, I can. Right, he sent us a very, right. a very okay. wonderful card with a long note yeah, that said really that nice. you weren't supposed yeah. to read all, saying, all the stuff. Saying, don't let Moynihan hog But the he sent us a ton of sh- weird sh- shit in this <laughs> box. There's a, a hat that says No Google, which is like Google themed and has a weird pinwheel thing on the top. So I think this is for Matt. Because Matt would actually wear this. Matt would wear this casually because that's a thing you'll do. Uh, Nixon now bumper sticker, bumper sticker that for, uh, m- uh, well, against Mr. Michael Dukakis, defend firearms, defeat Dukakis. Moynihan's grabbing Ma- all Moynihan the Spiro Agnew. obviously yeah. claimed yeah. the Spiro Agnew um, uh, Vault patch. Of his <laughs> which, which has a two ninety five price tag on the back. Uh, um, and yeah. yes. But worth way more. Wow. I am, yeah, I am totally. again guilty. Back in 1971, right? So that's wearing this George Wallace button. Only because, again, as I said, he, I'm guilty of it anyways. Um, only because he can't win. And I, I think it's. Funny. And by the way, we should point out that George Wallace actually. Corrected. I'm insured by cult. He, he was shot and corrected his ways. Yeah. After he was shot. Well, so that's why I'm wearing it. Bad people should be shot. Obviously, and given a chance. To <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think no, is pretty much fine. that is pretty much fine. the neocon position, isn't it? <laughs> oh! Bad people, we shoot the shit out of them. They'll mend their ways. No. The world will be safe for democracy. Kind yeah, of. I have no objection. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. Exactly. You've won me over to your side, actually. That is a pure distillation. I think I can, I can work with that. So I want to thank you both. You're remarkable, oh, incredibly both. human beings. There's like four of us. No, I just thank the, the two gentlemen who oh, sent right. us stuff. Sorry. Jeez. <laughs> um, and, there's, and there's way more um, back at the office. And again, as I said, I'll be liberating it from there and bringing it in here. Um, I'm so grateful, again, for the enormous support that you folks are always showing us. And the thousand-odd souls who are giving it's us money on Patreon. One thousand. It that's clicked great. over while we were doing this podcast. That's great. It's great. It's yeah. That's very And beautiful. also, by the way, I've said this before in the Patreon ones, is that um, we get a lot of mail, um, a very, very high volume of mail recently. We will get back to you. Um, it takes a little bit of time because we're trying to catch up at the moment. Yeah. Or I'm trying to catch up at the moment. So. Amen. So, Amen. So, you know, we're not ignoring you. 
Good. Well, if you sent a Michael shitty is. email that was like you're <laughs> like a horrible Nazi or something, I'm not going to yeah. respond. Okay. So go Good. fuck yourself. I think we can get out of here. No, are you selling anything? Is there anything you're doing that you need to highlight? Do we? Can we? Can we you're help? No, you? I don't think so. I wrote a book a year ago, yeah, but it's yeah. still in the stores. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I wrote a book a year ago that we talked about on this. Program, we did indeed. Um, which is a, uh, called Unjust. Mm-hmm. Uh, I forget the subtitle, actually. Wow. <laughs> Unjust, social Stacey justice, Abrams and the unmaking of America. Yes, it's a bodice ripper. You yeah. will enjoy it. <laughs> it's an attack on <laughs> racial hierarchies, and it'll uh, get you a little titillated. So uh, mm, give it a Lots of sex in there is what he's saying. Lots of sex. If you wrote a sex-fueled novel, no, would you do it under your real name or under a pen name? I, I, do I get paid if I do it under a I mean, I don't understand I mean, why anyone would probably. opt to use a pen name. I would write it under the name of Scooter what? Libby. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm talking about. Which is a very sexy name. Just just Google yeah. Scooter Libby Japan oh, we sex know. scenes. We know. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorites. Did I ever say, can I tell you one final story? This yeah. is a brief one. Apparently. And Matt will appreciate this. Um, my uh, absolutely lovely, fantastic um, ex, uh, who's the best, um, was at a party with me in D.C. And this was many years ago and she disappeared and she was talking to somebody and she came back to me and she said, um, <laughs> this is the, the verbatim quote. And Matt, I might have told you this before. And she's like, I don't know, this guy keeps on talking to me. And so, like, I don't know, like, a guy is, like, trying to, like, fuck me or something and his name is Scooter. And that was the end of the night. That's when I went and that was uh, Scooter Libby. Uh, who had uh, be fresh tried. out of the, fresh out of the pokey? Super bad. Look, but you know he's been in jail. Give him some, give, like you know, take it easy on him. He came out, and you know she's an attractive dame, and you know that's what happened. So uh, Scooter Libby tried to have sex with Max wife. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he would deny it, but of course he would. He's a jailbird. <laughs> he's a liar. Noah loves him. Oh, my God. Noah loves him. <laughs> He's, like, poking with his elbow. He's, like, fellow neocon. Sorry. Oh, my God. No, it actually didn't say anything. Just to be clear. Bye. 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 Later. We know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Horse.